So we begin our reading this morning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. He, of course, goes on that we are to stand, and he provides the armor as it's listed, and we'll get to there in future studies, of course, but not today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer again this morning. Father, as we pause these moments, again, we thank you for the privilege it is to come together and gather around the truth of your word. And we pray that you might give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, and eyes to see the truth of your word as Christ is revealed therein. Lord, may it be that we gather today and not just to fulfill some religious feeling of responsibility or duty, but Lord, may we gather today with hearts that desire to grow in the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may you use the truth of your word in every heart and life to accomplish your eternal purpose and your work as you have so deemed to do. Now, Father, we pray this morning that as we would declare the truth of your word, may each word that we speak and the very meditation and thoughts of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, we pray. For it's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week, if you've been with us, you remember that we began our study of this particular portion, beginning in verse 10 of Paul's epistle, in which Paul addresses the matter of spiritual warfare. And I explained to you that not only is it true that every believer is involved in this war, but what's more is that this fight in which we are involved is one in which we've already been provided the victory. It's already been won by our Lord Jesus Christ. And before we begin to enter into this Again, this particular portion of this study, I want to remind you of some things that I've done throughout our study of Ephesians. And and Paul, as he does throughout many of his epistles, is very clearly uh, demonstrated this manner of his writing in this book. In chapters 1 through 3, of course, we find tremendous, deep theological, doctrinal truths that are established, are declared by Paul, and he's establishing the church at Ephesus in these truths. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, of course, this is the practical portion of Paul's letter. And what's happening is, and again, I want to remind you of this because it's of the utmost importance that we remember and understand this truth, that it's impossible for you to live out the truths of chapters 4, 5, and 6. All that that entails is we have spent months dealing with. It's impossible for us to live out these truths without understanding and embracing the truth of chapters 1 through 3, in which Paul identifies and explains in detail our position as provided by God in Jesus Christ. And so chapters 1 through 3 are all about you are in Christ. And, and Paul deals with that multiple times, he even makes that statement about in Him, in Christ. And so we are in Him and in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, this is the living out of the truth of being in Christ. And now Paul begins to explain what it looks like for Christ to be in you. So if we are in Him, then He is living His life in us. And that's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about. So even before we begin... Uh, to get far into this matter and this subject, if you will, which Paul deals with in chapter 6, verses 10 and following, 
and 10 through 18 specifically, before we even get into all of this study, it is imperative that we again remember this is not some isolated passage that Paul has written. And when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he wrote this entire epistle, and it was provided unto them to read at that one time given to them and to study and to continue to go over it and to understand it. But it was not something from which they were just to pluck portions out of it and read this section or this section. It was an epistle written written to them that they might have this understanding. And so it's progressive in nature, as are all the epistles. There's a progression in the epistle. And so as we come to chapter 6, verse 10 specifically, while many people would just isolate this portion of the text, and many people would even preach, many teachers, pastors, what have you, would take chapter 6, verse 10 and following and deal on spiritual warfare. It is a tragedy to do so apart from understanding the truths of chapters 1 through 5 and even chapter 6 up to verse 10. It is horrible to attempt to take this portion of Scripture and start dealing with spiritual warfare and battles that you fight apart from understanding the position we have in Christ. For let us remember, as I spoke a moment ago, that... Christ is our victory. He's already won the victory. So we are in Him, and now He is in us. This is not Paul saying, do the best you can as a Christian to stand against wickedness. Paul is saying, you are in Christ. You've been given the victory in Him. Now stand in the victory that God has provided in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, concerning, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the context of that passage is death. Where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? And how all this is swallowed up in the victory that has been provided in Christ. Last week I pointed out to you the importance of the definite article, the, as used in the statement, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. The use of the definite article, the, indicates that this victory is not a victory, it's not any victory, but specifically the final or ultimate victory. When Paul says, but thanks be to God which giveth us us the victory, it's not any victory or it's not a victory, it's not one of many victories, it is the ultimate final victory that has been provided in Jesus Christ. We are not fighting, as I mentioned to you last week, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from the position of victory. We have been made victorious in Christ. Therefore, because we are in Him, He is now in us. And because of this, we fight and we stand in the victory already provided. Paul's statement, finally, my brethren, as he, we've read in verse 10, is not an introduction to spiritual warfare, but rather the beginning of his conclusion to all that he has addressed within the previous chapters of this epistle. Additionally, it is important that we recognize the progressive nature, as I mentioned, of Paul's writing in this epistle. Last week we considered three truths rooted in verse 10, just as a review before we get into the study this morning. He says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. First of all, Paul points out that we do not possess the strength necessary for this fight. Again, this is not Paul saying, do the best you can, try to be the best Christian you can, try to fight the best battle you can, try to resist sin as much as you can. Throughout Scripture, we are reminded of the truth of our insufficiency in contrast to the sufficiency of our Savior and His grace. In 2 Corinthians 3.5, in his letter to those at Corinth, Paul wrote, 
And, and they were, again, he was stating here because many were criticizing him or, or questioning him. And Paul was stating that he does not have to uh, refer himself and he does not have to uh, seek approval of other men. And he goes on to say, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And what Paul is saying is even in the attack, because that was an attack against him at this point and against his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so when they come against Paul and they begin to question his authority or question uh, his ministry, and Paul says, look, I don't approve myself and I don't need the approval of other men. He said, my sufficiency is not of myself. My sufficiency is of God. Here's what he's saying. God is sufficient. And I am called of God, empowered by Him. It is God doing this, not me. So we don't possess the strength necessary for this fight of ourselves. Second, Paul points out that we are in need of God's power and His strength. Obviously, if we don't possess the strength for the battle and the war, then we're in need of some other strength. And in verse 10, he goes on to say again, again, uh, of course, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. So we must depend on the power and might of God. It is the Lord alone in whom we find our strength. Christ is our victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, we see this to be true. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, Romans 8, 36 and 37, and many other passages. Third, Paul said that God will strengthen us for the battle. This is not a thing, a matter in which we come saying, okay, I hope God will give me the strength that's necessary. Remember something. You have the indwelling Spirit of God within you if you are a child of God. You have the power of God dwelling in you. Christ is, is in Him, dwelleth all the fullness of Godhead bodily, and He now lives within you as a follower of Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as one who's been redeemed, one who's been born again. So He dwells within us. And so God does strengthen us, and the Scriptures consistently remind us of this truth as well. Ephesians 3.20, Philippians 4.13, 2 Corinthians 12.9, and many more passages. We find, of course, that it is God who is our strength. So as we continue our examination of this final chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus... We discover Paul explaining the reality of the spiritual war in which every believer finds himself engaged. As I mentioned last week, whether we are prepared or not, the battle continues. And today I want to do something, uh, before we dig into these verses specifically, I want us to somewhat overview them as we enter in again to this uh, Paul's portion of this of his letter to the Ephesians concerning this matter of spiritual warfare. There are some things that I mentioned last week that I think we need to look into a little more closely and deeply so that we understand spiritual warfare uh, in, in a, in a, 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 with a greater understanding than maybe we would if we just approached the text and ran with it. And so as we consider these truths uh, within this text... We need to be reminded uh, concerning some things concerning in relation to the daily fight and the daily war which goes on about us, and there's some things that we must understand. First of all, I want to point out from verses 11 and 12 that we must recognize the nature of this war. And I touched on this last week briefly, but I want to look at it a little more closely this morning because I believe it's imperative that we recognize this. And I said last week as well that many times we do not recognize the war that's actually going on, or we think that spiritual warfare is simply or only whenever there's an attack against the gospel from without, attack against uh, believers, attack against the church, and we view that alone as spiritual warfare. But spiritual warfare is much more than that alone, though that is included in warfare itself. And so we need to recognize the nature of this war. Verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, 
And, and let's stop here for a moment, and we're not going to really get into this yet, but let me make mention of this. Here Paul is, is giving uh, an imperative. He is saying that you are to put on. You put on the whole armor of God. Now again, we must recognize a few things. We are not looking for armor to put on. We are appropriating the provision already given by God. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Appropriate the provision already made. And so he's not telling us to go do something of our own, of our own uh, uh, doing or efforts, but rather he is saying appropriate the provision that God has made for you. And we'll get into that later. He said that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, once again, I want to remind you, as I briefly mentioned last week, there are only two fronts in reality in which spiritual warfare occurs. There's two major fronts. Now, there's many forms of attack. I get that. But there's really only two fronts, and we need to recognize that. First of all, there's the attacks from within. In James 1, 13 through 15, James wrote, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. I believe this passage alone, but let me just side note here for a moment, not to digress, but this is important to mention, regarding the impeccability of Christ, which, meaning, which means that a theological term which is explaining that Christ could not sin, not just that he chose not to sin, but that he could not sin, we understand from James this argument is, is very strongly made that men sin not just because they are tempted, but men sin because they possess a sinful lust within them that desires sin. And therefore, men give in to this sin because of the lust that is present. And that's why you find that there are, of course, as Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, that there are besetting sins. And the fact of the matter is the besetting sins are not the same for every individual. And so some people are tempted more so by this one sin than someone else. And someone else may not be tempted by that particular sin at all. Again, an example of that would be if you took someone who's never... Uh, been a drug addict, right? And never been exposed to any types of drugs like that. And you were to set drugs before him. Honestly, that person is probably not going to have any temptation to take and, and begin to use drugs, right? But if you find someone who maybe once was a drug addict that now, and this is just a very, very, uh, visible illustration. If you took someone who was a drug addict who came off of that, then you put them around drugs. Guess what? There's something in them probably that's going to rise up and say, hey, I'm kind of tempted by this. The point being that we all have besetting sins, and so the, the sin occurs, and we're talking about actual sins. We'll deal with that in a moment and explain what that means. But the actual sins take place because there is a sinful nature within us. Even as believers, look at that as well concerning spiritual warfare. This is part of it. There is a, a, a battle that's going on from within, and there is still a sinful lust within us, a sinful nature within us, a sinful flesh. Not talking about the body itself, but talking about the nature of this body that dwells within us. And so there is this conflict that goes on. So Christ is impeccable. He could not sin. Why? Because even in Luke chapter 4, when you find the temptations, and I'll briefly mention this in case you're not aware, this is something for you to look into and chew on maybe a little bit later. But when you look at the temptations that are mentioned, 
uh, the Scripture says Jesus being tempted 40 days, but yet then you find a list of three temptations that are mentioned, and they are mirrored to the temptation of, that Satan tempted Eve with in the garden. There was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you find that in the Garden of Eden, Eve, of course, sinned on, on every occasion. But Christ was tempted in the same way by Satan, and he did not sin at all. He cannot sin. There was nothing that Satan said that appealed to him because he possessed no sinful lust. He possessed no sinful flesh as you and I do. Though he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, he did not possess sinful flesh. And so you have the impeccability of Christ. But in James, here we find that we are sinful because we are born that way. We are cursed under Adam's sin, and therefore this original sin uh, is with us. And because of that, there is a sinful nature within us, and there is a constant battle going on within the life of the believer. This is about the attacks within. So he goes on to say, "...every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed." Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So the sins which men personally commit are theologically referred to as actual sins. Actual sins are the result of man's own lust which resides within him due to his sinful nature. And this lust, of course, is the result of original sin, which was passed on to every man by Adam and his sin in the Garden of Eden. Paul explained this in his letter of Romans. In Romans 5.12, he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, all have sinned because of their actual sins, their lustful desires. But the only reason those lustful desires are present within us as they are is because original sin and the God's curse on original sin, we are now under that curse, and that sinful nature is now passed on to us. Paul further expounded on this sinful nature, contrasted by the Spirit of God dwelling within him as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And again, Romans chapter 7, we've dealt with that in, in years past in our study of Romans. But Romans chapter 7 is a very interesting chapter of Scripture, and it, it correlates with Galatians chapter 5. But in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, we read, For I delight, Paul says, in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So let's stop for a moment. When Paul says his members, he is now referencing his actual body. He's talking about my physical body. He says, within me, there is this conflict. Within the members of my body, my, my, my head, my hands, my legs, he says, my body, there is this struggle and this constant battle that is taking place. Notice he said in verse 22 again, for I delight, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Now he mentions mind here, and that's important also. And bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now let's stop here for a moment as well. When Paul says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul is referencing that he is chained to, he is connected to this wicked nature that he cannot get away from. No matter what he does, he drags with him this decaying rock 
dead body. And he's not talking about literally his physical body, of course, but this sinful nature that he possesses and he cannot escape it. Let me say this to you. Neither can you apart from leaving this world entering into eternity in which we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. But God is continually working sanctification in our lives without question. And so Paul says, who's going to deliver me from this body of uh, of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25. So then with the mind, he says, mind again, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Not talking about his literal body here, but that fleshly nature. That fleshly nature is is drawing him to sin, but the Spirit of God is drawing him to righteousness. And the inward man of which Paul speaks refers, of course, to the Spirit of God who is dwelling within him. And while the other law in his members refers to this sinful fleshly nature, within his mind, he talks about the mind and and the inward man and about obedience and the the law of righteousness or the law of God, because the law of God is the law of righteousness. Remember, God's law is a declaration of His righteousness. And so he's saying that I, uh, the inward man desires after God and His righteousness while this fleshly sinful nature desires after sin. And this is a continual, consistent battle that is ongoing and taking place. I've experienced that this week. I've experienced that this morning. And so have you, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. This is a continual battle that is going on. You cannot escape this. And whether, again, you are prepared or not for the war in which you're engaged, you're engaged in the war nonetheless. And it is, first of all, this inward attack that's taking place on a regular, consistent basis. So when he speaks of his mind, he's referring to the renewed mind provided by God's Spirit. Paul declared he serves the law or the righteousness of God with the renewed mind. However, the flesh continues to resurrect within him, attempting to take captive that which does not belong to it. And we'll see what that means in Galatians chapter 5. I told you these two verses or passages go right together, and Paul wrote both of them. And he explained this further in his letter to the churches of Galatia. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Let's read these together. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul is, throughout that entire chapter, he's saying, I don't do the things I want to do, I do the things I don't want to do. And you have to understand what he is speaking of. He is saying, the inward man desires after righteousness, while the flesh, the sinful flesh, desires after And so the inner man desires this, and yet the flesh is hindering him all the time. While the the other side is that the flesh would be absolutely unleashed in doing whatever it wanted to do were it not for God's Spirit that is reigning him in. Were it not for God's Spirit who who is correcting and convicting and rebuking and drawing him and chastening him and and leading him in truth. So in Galatians 5.16, he goes on to say, again, reading that first portion of that verse. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. So Paul, once again in Galatians, references the flesh and the Spirit. And the flesh, meaning again his sinful nature, continues to attempt to take control of his body 
of which the flesh has no rights. When the scripture says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, we must understand what Paul is saying. Paul recognized, as we'll see in Corinthians and throughout other writings as well of Paul, that he was not his own, but that he was purchased by God. He has been redeemed. He is now, he possesses the very spirit of God within him, and the spirit of God within him is now the one who has all rights to his physical body. He no longer has the right to do uh, with himself what he would choose, but he is to submit himself under the control and authority of the Spirit of God dwelling within him. So when he says the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, what he's saying is this. The flesh, the sinful nature, not the body, the sinful nature wants to control my body of which it has no rights to whatsoever because I am not owned of myself and I have been purchased by the Lord. For God had redeemed Paul, and therefore Paul's body and spirit belonged to God, and the flesh had no rightful claim to control his body. It was for this reason Paul wrote in his epistle to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Now notice what he says next. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So both the body and the spirit. Now he's saying there is this flesh that fights against that. The flesh wants to take control of my body. And guess what? The sinful nature which I possess has no right to claim any control over my actions, my attitude, my thoughts, or anything else. But then on the other hand, guess what I do? There's a constant war going on, and there are times that I yield to the sinful flesh. There are times that I yield to flesh. And that's what Paul is talking of here. Then we find second, not only there's this attack within, and we need to understand this attack, attack from within is a spiritual warfare which we are engaged with every moment of our lives. We will never escape this. As Paul said, who shall deliver me from this oh, wretched man that I am? Who shall deliver me from this body of this death? But I think, thanks be to God, which gives us the victory, right? It's God's going to be the one who ultimately delivers me from this wicked, sinful nature, which still I drag around with me as detestable as it is. So then there are attacks from without. Let's look again at our text, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Put on the whole armor of God, Paul writes, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now he's talking about we're not wrestling against other people that we can tangible, we can touch and feel, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So while many people embellish the thought of Satan as an adversary, the truth nonetheless remains that we do have an enemy who is relentless in his attack against the gospel and all followers of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter warned of this adversary in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, who resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Although the attack may often come by physical means, every attack is spiritual in nature and bears spiritual implications and spiritual consequences. Such attacks, no matter what form in which they come, have one purpose, and that's what we need to understand. These attacks have one purpose and one purpose only. And what is that purpose? To prevent or hinder submission to God. 
In his epistle concerning uh, the importance of humbling ourselves before God, James says in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James is not stating, okay, first of all, you need to humble yourself before God, and then number two, after you've done that, then resist the devil. No, James is stating that to submit to God is to take a position against Satan. Because Satan's whole intent and purpose is to keep you, prevent you from submitting to God. This is the attack. In other words, it is not that we are attempting to resist the enemy in addition to submitting ourselves to the Lord and His Word, but rather it is that our submission to God, that is our resistance of Satan and his attacks. And inversely, obviously then, Satan's attack is always an attempt to keep us from submission to God. So if submission to God is resisting Satan then obviously the attack is that Satan is attempting to prevent us or hinder us to keep us from submitting to the Lord. That began in the Garden of Eden, if you remember. Again, when Satan tempted Eve, what was he saying? He was saying, don't believe God, believe me. Don't submit to God, submit to me. And that's exactly what the enemy still does today. So that brings us to number two. We must understand the purpose of the war. Verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. He goes on to say, stand therefore. So this, there is a reason behind every war. There is a reason behind every attack that, take pla- that takes place within a war. There are times that the reason for war may not be valid or good reasons, but a reason exists nonetheless. If we're going to be prepared for the battle that we face, it is important that we recognize the reason for this war and the reason this war is a reality. And and what's more, it is imperative that we are not only prepared, but that we also embrace the cause for which this war exists. I told you, as believers in Jesus Christ, you're engaged in spiritual warfare, whether you like it or whether you don't. And if you're not engaged in any other form, you're engaged with an internal war that's constantly going on with the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, them being contrary, they're in conflict, one with the other. And the spiritual war in which we are engaged exists for this one reason. God has determined, as it will be fulfilled, to accomplish His eternal redemptive purpose. However, Satan, although he is already defeated... (laughs) is relentless in his attempt to disrupt God's transforming work of the gospel. Now, Satan's already defeated. God's going to accomplish that which he has determined to do. And as a matter of fact, if you don't believe that, think of this for a moment. Even the cross, even Christ being slain on the cross, Satan viewed that obviously as though it was his victory when actually that was his doom. And God was using that to accomplish and fulfill His eternal redemptive purpose as He purposed it in Jesus Christ, as Paul mentions in the first chapters of this epistle of Ephesians. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains the weapons of this warfare and the purpose for them. And we'll look into this more so in the future. Again, I wanted to provide you somewhat of an overview of verses 10 through 13 to help explain that we understand the manner of this war in which we are engaged and and understanding the internal or the inward attack and the outward attacks that come upon us as well. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ." 
and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Notice closely, he says, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Notice Paul says every high thing that is working against Christ and the gospel. That's what he's speaking of here. And bringing that into captivity and every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. The weapons of this warfare, as Paul explains, are provided to us by God, and their purpose is that all things be brought under submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says in verse 5 again, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, let us consider this for a moment. How do we know God? What is the only way we can know God? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an attack to prevent, to hinder the work of the gospel. Now, Satan's already defeated. I'm telling you, listen, this is the beauty of this. Satan is relentless in his attack to hinder the gospel. But I am telling you, as those who are ministers of the gospel, as those who've been made stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are in a battle in which the war has already been won. So no matter how strongly the enemy may oppose and how much conflict there may be, and just a side note here, let us remember as well that the darker the world is in which we live, the brighter the light of the gospel should shine. And so in a world of absolute spiritual darkness in which it's, oh, this is bad and things are getting bad and things are getting worse, let me remind you of this one truth, okay? Because we become so subjective concerning Scripture and what it says and even our own society and the world and culture in which we live. Yeah, we live in a wicked day, but think about Noah. Every imagination of man was evil continually before the Lord. And there's one man that found grace, and then his family, because God gave Noah grace, his family, he, he showed them grace on Noah's behalf in reality and brought them on in the fulfillment of his purpose and plan. The fact of the matter is, yeah, it's wicked and it's dark, but we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are ministers and stewards of the gospel. And this is a light that shines forth, the brightest, obviously, in darkness. So he says, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and that only comes through Christ, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every war is fought for a cause. Yet it is imperative that those engaged in the war not only be aware of the cause, but also committed to the cause for which they fight. I just recently heard a report, a news report, regarding the problems within the Russian army that exist right now during the present Ukrainian conflict, during their invasion. It was reported that many of the Russian soldiers were not aware that they were going to war. Due to this ignorance, there are Russian soldiers who are not committed to the war in which they've been forced to fight. And of course, this leads to disruption within the ranks and a lack of passion for the cause. In contrast, there are many Ukrainian citizens who've set everything aside, who are forsaking all, even those who are in safe places, whether it be the United States or other countries, who are now going back home to join and fight with their president, who is standing up against this invasion into their homeland. So you have one group that's really, many of them obviously not committed to this at all and really don't even want to be there, while you have others that are fleeing to get there. Because they are embracing the cause. Might I say to you, the war in which we are engaged is of the greatest cause. It's the cause of Christ. 
For it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has determined to reconcile men to Himself. And the beauty of this war, as I've mentioned so many times to you, is that we fight from the position of victory. For Christ has already defeated the enemy, and in the end, although not every man will be saved, every man will be brought to submission and confession regarding the lordship of Jesus Christ nonetheless. And all of this is for the glory of God the Father. Here's what I'm saying to you. Not every man is going to come to faith in Christ. Not every man is going to be born again. But God's purpose is fulfilled nonetheless. That's very clearly stated in all of Scripture. But let us understand this too. Every person will be brought under submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, 9-11, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted Him, Christ, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who die in rejection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in eternity will bow before Him, acknowledging He is Lord. All things will be brought to obedience under Him. All things will be brought to subjection and submission under Him. He's already Lord. Let me prove that to you. As much as men may resist and reject the Lordship of Christ, who gives life? Who takes life? All men are subject to Him, whether they recognize it or not. But as believers, we willingly submit to His Lordship, embracing His Lordship, and embracing the cause for which we've been engaged in this war. Why is there a war that goes on? Well, the reason this war exists that we are involved in, as Paul mentions in, in Ephesians 6, in these verses and following, as we'll look more into this next week, Lord willing. But as we see this war in which we are engaged, we must recognize that there is a war that is taking place within. Why? Because the enemy does not want us to, as believers to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then there's a war without that's taking place upon the gospel and those who would proclaim and declare the gospel and those who are walking by faith in Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus. There's a war and attack against the, the, the faith, let's say, as a whole. And why does that war exist? Because the enemy does not want men to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a reason we are in this war, and it's an inevitable war in which we are involved. We will be engaged in this war as followers of Christ. And by the way, let me say this. You actually will be engaged in this war whether or not you're a follower of Christ, because you're either on the winning side or you're on the opposing side. You are either with the Lord Jesus Christ because He is in you and you are in Him, or either you are acting against the gospel and you are rejecting refusing to submit which is the whole cause of the war that exists and so in Christ we've been made more than conquerors of course we are victorious because this war is not about prosperity and this war is not about the massive growth of numbers within a body of the church this war is not about you and it's not about me and though we face personal attacks if you will or we experience attacks that seem to be personal, if these are spiritual attacks, understand it's not about you and it's not about me. It is about the Lordship of Jesus Christ that is being attacked, whether it is the inward attack or whether it's the outward attack. It is all about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not about us, it's about Him. And He's victorious. That's why I say to you, we fight in a battle that the war has already been won. The war was never about us. It's all about Him and His Lordship. And might I say to you, 
as I've said many times before, you do not make Jesus Lord, you do not make Jesus Savior any more than you make Him Creator. He is who He is. And we have the privilege of serving under our captain, the captain of hosts, our Savior, our Lord, as we are engaged in this spiritual conflict that continues and will continue until eternity. But hear me, does that not make us as well long for the day in which this struggle will be absolutely gone? As Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Oh, yeah, but thanks be to God, (laughs) which giveth us the victory in Christ. He is our victory.